When God saw what they, the Ninevites, did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he said he would do to them, and he did not do it. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry, and he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you were a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, Do you do well to be angry? Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he should see what would become of the city. Now, the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant, but when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint, and he asked that he might die, and said, It is better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, Do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he said, Yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. And the Lord said, You pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should it not I pity Nineveh, that great city, in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle? Let's pray that prayer we pray. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. I don't know how many of you have noticed this. Uh, in the past few years, one of the most popular words in the English language that you hear all over the place now is gaslighting. That was Merriam-Webster's word of the year for 2022. You hear it in politics, psychology, relationships, all kinds of places. And like most popular faddish words, it's often used incorrectly by the people using it. Uh, but for myself, I was amazed when it, a word like that became popular in a year like 2022, because it's based on a 1944 Ingrid Bergman film. And since there's a decreasing market for such old films, that surprised me because I guarantee you that 99% of the people using the phrase did not see the film. Of course, I have, because I'm a nerd, and I, uh, I like old movies. George has been telling me for years I was born in the wrong decade. But uh, I like old music, I like old TV shows, old movies, and I especially like Ingrid Bergman, which is the best thing Sweden ever gave us, because it wasn't their food, I can tell you that. Um, <laughs> But I should also tell you that Gaslight, while it's a wonderful psychological thriller, is not, in fact, an Alfred Hitchcock film. It was directed by George Cukor. It's a common error, and I bring it up because I noticed in the PCA put out a big report in a book last year, and in a footnote they mentioned Gaslighting, and they said, you know, in the Alfred Hitchcock film, and I'm like, oh, it kills me. It's a pet peeve. Sorry. But along with Ingrid, it stars Charles Boyer, Joseph Cotton. It's Angela Lansbury's first film. That's not important. The plot is basically that Ingrid is being tormented by her husband. He, he spends the entire film convincing her that she's crazy. And the title comes from the fact that one of the things driving her to madness is the fact that the gas lights in the house, because this predates electricity, right, they occasionally get dim for no with no explanation. And, of course, the husband keeps telling her she's imagining things. I would give away more than that, but you all need to get cultured and go see it yourself. Anyway, gaslighting used as a verb 
basically means to mess with somebody's head, to push their buttons and then act like nothing happened, uh, to do something and then pretend you did nothing, or vice versa. And now you know why the word comes up in politics so much, right? Uh, gaslighting is not used in a positive sense, because no one likes being messed with, do they? It makes us angry. And last week we were talking about anger, Jonah's anger in particular, but today the anger just keeps building, uh, and we know that Jonah was already angry where we left off in verse 4. But it's not about to get any better, and that's because starting in verse 6, God starts messing with Jonah. And Jonah's anger issues escalate pretty quickly. Now, I admitted last week that I have a temper. I think we all do. Uh, what makes us angry varies a bit from person to person, of course. Uh, but we all get angry, and not always or even very often for godly reasons. Uh, and I said that we get angry because we feel like we've been wronged in some way. Some injustice has been done, either real or perceived. Somebody done somebody wrong, as B.J. Thomas sang. And most of the time, it's not the major injustices, it's the minor ones. Kind of like in Gaslight, right? It, it tends to be the little things that make us snap. The toys left on the floor. The trash not taken out even though the daggone drawer won't even close because it's overflowing. The dishes left undone. People not knowing when they should go home. You can ask Phil about that. <laughs> Phil has a sign right there that Georgia bought him. Welcome to our home. Please leave by nine, right? <laughs> Phil would sooner forgive you robbing a bank than overstaying your welcome. So, you know, and like Phil, we all have our pet peeves and our sore spots and our phobias and things. And if you push our buttons in the right way, we will react. We will get angry. And most of our anger is ultimately personal, not typically generic. Uh, injustice in the sort of broad, esoteric sense doesn't affect us directly. If somebody steals a car in, like, Nairobi, right, that doesn't affect me personally. But if somebody cuts me off in traffic in Allentown, now we have a problem. Why? Because I don't like being messed with. And neither do any of you. Nobody likes being messed with. But in today's passage, God is messing with Jonah. Gaslighting him, if you will. I don't know how else to characterize it. And apart from everything else in the story, it almost feels like cruel and arbitrary. It feels like he's toying with Jonah. If you've ever had a cat that played with a mouse instead of killing it, it's kind of like that. We had a cat that used to do that. We don't do cats anymore. Wicked creatures. But we got Friday because we had a real mouse problem, and, and what he would do is at night he would catch these mice. He would bring, bring it to the living room alive while Georgia and I were watching television, and he would throw it up in front of the screen so that we could admire it and then catch it and then do it again. Telling you, cats are twisted animals. But uh, I say that, and I, I hate to say it, but this chapter shows us God seemingly at his most cat-like, right? He, he's deliberately messing with Jonah, and yet he won't put Jonah out of his misery. Jonah's asking for it, but he won't do it. And he does this because he's basically he's, he's using Jonah as a living parable. He's going to explain Jonah's anger by telling him a story and using Jonah himself as the object lesson and the punchline. No one likes being a punchline either. And while Jonah's anger last week was 
just unholy and wrong, but by verse 8, I hate to admit this, I kind of get it. But God doesn't mess with his children arbitrarily. He has his reasons. That may seem like pretty cold comfort in the moment. It feels capricious, and it can lead to bitterness. And that's ultimately kind of where Jonah ends up in some ways. But we saw, we saw before Easter how Jonah had preached to Nineveh, right? <clears throat> He, 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 it was half-hearted, it was, it was loveless and ugly, and yet the people of Nineveh started repenting almost immediately. And, and we saw last week that Jonah was sick about that. It bothered him. Uh, and, and even before he could get out of the city, he's already ticked off. He, he sees people panicking, repenting, and he immediately starts griping to God about it. I just knew it. I just knew it. I knew something like this would happen, Lord. I, I knew, God, that you're gracious and merciful and slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, darn it. In essence, Jonah is angry at God's injustice, his unjust mercy. He's angry at God for not destroying Nineveh. Or more to the point, he's angry that Nineveh is even repenting at all. Nineveh is getting the chance to straighten up, and Jonah resents that. So God starts messing with Jonah. But to be fair, Jonah started it. In verse 5, we read that Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he should see what would become of the city. Now that seems kind of innocuous, but you know, this guy's really asking for it here. Uh, Jonah is still holding on to the hope that Nineveh might get whacked. He's just finished complaining about God's mercy. Why does he not go home and lick his wounds? Why does he stay? I mean, they say hope springs eternal, right? Uh, but Jonah apparently has a sliver of hope that God will either A, change his mind about this thing, or B, that the Ninevites' repentance will prove to be short-lived and insincere, and they'll still get it anyway. That's what he's rooting for. He is straight up rooting for their death. He wants the fireworks, and he's waiting to see what God does. He's giving God one last chance to do the right thing. And it is striking that he goes to the east side of the city, now, you have to remember, Nineveh is where modern-day Mosul, Iraq is. For those of you who didn't do well in geography, that means that it is to the east of Israel. And what that means here is that Jonah is going to the other side of Nineveh. He is not heading home. He is cutting himself off by going to the east side of the city. It's an inconvenient place to go. And it's obvious from this that he's not planning to go home right away. He doesn't want to miss out on the festivities. Honestly, if he had gone back west, he would have to travel back through Nineveh again. I think he relishes the idea at this point of walking home through the rubble instead. I think he wants to take the grand tour and to see the mangled bodies, the remains of houses and palaces and the charred earth. I think nothing would please him more than going home with the knowledge and the news to tell everybody that Nineveh has been wiped off the map. And I saw it with my own eyes. Now, it doesn't mention here whether Jonah climbed anything, but there are a few mountain ridges on the eastern side of Mosul. I kind of suspect that Jonah would be looking for high ground. He has read the story of Sodom and Gomorrah. He's aware. It's probably best to keep some distance. 
also makes for a better view. And we're told that he erected a booth for himself. Now, I sincerely doubt that this was a, more than a kind of primitive lean-to kind of thing. You know, I don't think Jonah brought any lumber with him or tools. I don't know what kind of eagle scout he was, but, you know, he scrounged up something. He slapped something together. He's in a remote place. It's also the desert, so you're not going to sit there exposed. Uh, and since it's not a particularly green place even today, Jonah probably can't find a tree to sit under or anything, so there's not much wood lying around either. Uh, my suspicion then would be that he had to cobble something together out of rocks, maybe make a short wall in a C-shape, and whatever handful of sticks he could find, he lays them over the top to provide a little bit of like a lattice or something. And Jonah is thinking ahead to the morning. The, the wall of this booth, I'm thinking, would block the eastern sunrise, so starting at midday is when it would get hot. Uh, but he has no choice but to leave one end open so that he can get in and out, and also so that he can see the show. So he's created a, a personalized, somewhat adequate viewing booth for his private show. He's got a front row seat for the destruction of Nineveh. And by making himself a booth, I couldn't help but draw a parallel to where else booths come up. And I thought of the Feast of Booths, you know, what they call the Feast of Tabernacles, right? And it occurs to me that Jonah would probably have some considerable practice as a Jew in assembling such a structure, because it's an annual tradition. It's kind of like dyeing eggs or decorating Christmas trees. And yet it's such a screwed up contrast, isn't it? Because the festival of booths is designed to be a, a humble celebration. It's a reminder to the Israelites of the hard years in the wilderness, a reminder of God's grace and mercy in giving you a homeland. And here's Jonah using his tabernacle skills, not to celebrate God's goodness, but to better enjoy the destruction of a city. He's so smug, the more you think about it. It reminded me, it's like I want to I want to, you know, judge, but it reminded me actually of the Super Bowl this year. Of course, my, my boys, the Eagles, were in it. So what did I do? I, I took my four older kids and left my football ignorant wife and the little ones at home, and we went all the way to South Philly to watch the game uh, at a friend's house. Now, of course, the game wasn't actually happening in Philadelphia, and there are certainly enough televisions in Allentown. I didn't have to do that, but I wanted to be near the action. Uh, I wanted to hear the neighbors cheering every time we scored. I wanted to be in the crowd when we went to Broad Street to celebrate, and I was so cocky about this whole thing at halftime anyway. Ken was texting me during the game, and I, and I actually said I, I felt bad when Mahomes, the, the Kansas City quarterback, uh, looked like he got hurt because I said, well, I don't want this game to feel like it was too easy. <laughs> and Ken warned me. And of course we lost. So the big event we were all waiting for never happened. Of course, after that, the Philadelphians, you know, they go out and they riot anyway. But, you know, that's the kind of disappointment that Jonah is setting himself up for. He is arrogantly setting up camp in the eastern suburbs, even though he has, suspects that God's going to let Nineveh off the hook. That's why he was mad. But he hopes there are some holdouts not repenting still. He's actually rooting for wickedness to overcome so that things will blow up. He wants sin to flourish so that judgment may abound. Of course, it doesn't work out that way. And while he's sitting around like a doofus waiting for the fireworks, God starts to mess with him and poke in what is perhaps the greatest bit of trolling in Scripture. 
Verse 6, now the Lord appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah that it might be a shade for his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. And when the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint and he asked that he might die and said, it is better for me to die than to live. I think if gaslighting is meant to question your sanity, make you question your sanity, this kind of fits the bill because it would just about do it for me. Because again, it's not usually the big stuff. It's not the whale. It's the plant. It's the little things that push us to the edge. In this case, it comes down to the heat. God is messing with the thermostat here. I know that gets close to the heart of every father in the room. Now, I hate the heat. So this resonates with me. I am a much less pleasant person in the dog days of summer, as my children can attest. I hate the heat itself. I hate the, the oppressive sun. That is why I wanted a house with all shade. I mean, yeah, we can't grow tomatoes very easily, but at least there's no sun, right? I hate the humidity of summer, because there are days in summer where you feel like you're swimming, and, and even out of the sun, it gets to you. And it, it doesn't cool down at night the way God intended. And I hate the sweating. I hate the mosquitoes. I just dread summer in so many ways. I feel like I can't breathe. I can't think. I can't work. I cannot sleep comfortably. And Georgia and I, like many married couples, can never agree on proper temperatures. She's the one that's turning the AC off because, well, it's only 85 today. Let's get some fresh air. And it's like, no, <laughs> give me the artificially reprogrammed air any day of the week. And some people say, like, you would like the desert because it's a dry heat. And it's like, nah, dry is great, but 120 degrees is still 120 degrees. And that's what Jonah is dealing with in Mosul, Iraq. Extreme heat will mess with anyone's sanity. And Jonah is already unstable, as we've seen. So God uses the heat just to tweak him and mess with him. And the passage makes it abundantly clear that this was all God's doing. It's not happenstance. There are no random events in this book. Salvation belongs to the Lord, but he's sovereign over everything. God hurls the storm against the ship. God appoints a fish to swallow Jonah. God speaks to the fish and tells it exactly where to puke him out on the beach. And that theme carries forward now in this passage again and again. God appoints a plant. God appoints a worm. God appoints the scorching wind. There's no mincing of words here. It's no mystery who's doing this. The author presumably Jonah, wants us to know that these things are not random. God is very deliberate in how he messes with Jonah, and it is calculated for maximum annoyance. Much like gaslighting, he is taking Jonah's already foul attitude and taking it up to 11. For those of you who know the Spinal Tap reference. Now think about it. You look at the timeline. Jonah storms out of Nineveh. He's fit to be tied. Why? Because they listened. And he yells at God about it next. God kind of shrugs and says, yeah, how's that working out for you? Jonah goes out to the east, which is already kind of a spiteful move. He sets up camp, and he does this explicitly to watch Nineveh burn. God comes along, sends him a miraculous plant, something that will provide better shade for this 
little guy, you know, under, it's better than the shoddy little shack that he built, right? And we don't know what kind of plant it was, it doesn't matter, uh, but King James calls it a gourd. I like Young's literal translation worded it, Jehovah God appointed a gourd, which is funnier than the ESV, I like that. Anyway, it's probably like one of the only green things in sight in a dry desert landscape, and it pops up overnight with no rain or anything, so it's clearly a miracle plant, miracle grow, but for real. And what strikes you is that it tells us exactly why God sent the plant. It's not because it's like, what does he say? He, he made it to come up over Jonah that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. God sent the plant because Jonah was uncomfortable. He sent it as a gift to an ungrateful, miserable man because he was hot. But as soon as Jonah gets his plant, God sends a worm. Like the whale, he gives this worm the very specific assignment to chew this thing, and the worm does so with gusto. It says the worm attacked the plant. Young's literal translation says it smiteth the gourd and it drieth up. This is the most violent and aggressive worm I've ever heard of, other than that Kevin Bacon movie from the early 90s that I don't think I saw. So he gives the plant just so he can take it away. Verse 6 and 7 are completely at odds with each other. It's a 180 reversal. And then God just gets straight up spiteful in verse 8. When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint, and he asked that he might die, and said, it is better for me to die than to live. <laughs> He's already killed the plant. But as soon as the sun gets up, Jonah wakes to a blistering hot wind. So in other words, this is not the kind of breeze that you're looking for when you're hot. Uh, it's more like bellows as to a furnace, right? And, and again, your, your few Bibles describe it as scorching. The Hebrew is literally cutting. Then the sun beats on Jonah, and the wind is hitting wherever the sun doesn't. So, and there's an interesting language parallel that happens here in the Hebrew, because just as we have this theme of God appointing things, in the Hebrew, the, words, the worm smites the plant, is what the Hebrew says. The same word gets used here about the sun. The sun smites Jonah. So when it says that Jonah was faint, the idea is that Jonah is withering every bit like the plant. He's drying up. He's withering under God's hand. And the point is that God gives Jonah no escape, no respite. He is relentless and oppressive. He gives and takes what Jonah, from Jonah so quickly it gives you whiplash. And as horrible as Jonah is, for just a second, I feel like I can kind of relate to the death wish in verse 8. More so than the previous one in verse 3. Jonah's complaint began with God's unjustified mercy towards Nineveh, and it was an argument over theodicy, broad terms. God's justice is a big picture thing. How can a holy God not destroy unholy Nineveh? That's a big question. But now it becomes personal. This is the difference between God allowing a war to happen over in Ukraine and God personally kicking you in the teeth. War is obviously a bigger deal, but the kick is personal, and so it hurts more. God in this scene almost comes across as capricious and cruel and arbitrary, even cat-like. 
He gives to Jonah for the express purpose of taking away. He's messing with Jonah. Now, time is not going to permit me to get into the application of this parable. I'm going to do that next week. I'm enjoying Jonah too much to stop just yet, so you get one more installment. But there is a reason for God doing all this. God is telling a parable about Jonah and his anger. And he's basically holding up a mirror to Jonah so that he can see himself clearly. There's a method to the madness here. But I wanted us to chew on this idea that sometimes God messes with his children. And while it feels like it is, it is not arbitrary and it is not capricious. God has a deeper memory than we do, and he's telling a bigger story than we're capable of listening to sometimes. You see, without context, we could read this, just this little section here, and and we could think that Jonah has every right to be angry with God, but we realize that this comes in a context, right? We've read the rest of the story. Jonah, at this point, has forfeited any right to be angry at God for anything ever all time. He's been absolutely horrible for three and a half out of four chapters, right? Um, He has a lot to learn, and so it's amusing to watch God messing with him in a way. But the problem is that when God pushes our buttons we forget that there's a context. And we act like it came out of the blue. Because we don't think we have as much to learn as Jonah did. And so we end up asking why God is messing with us. Why did he let this relationship fail? Why did he not let me get this job? Why did he let my loved one die? Why did he let me get sick? Why does he get my hopes up only to break them? Why is God messing with me? How many of you have ever felt like God was messing with you? I've been there. A situation will come up where it seems so perfect, so obvious. It's darn near poetic. If this thing happened, it would be so good. It would be, what a blessing it would be for for me, for my family, for the kingdom. And then it comes crashing down. God just says, nope, and snatches away the thing that he just gave me. And I wish I could blame Satan, but my theology says that God is sovereign, so he's the one messing with me. He's the one not only allowing the hard things, he's the one sending them. He appoints the worm and the scorching winds. He gives and he takes. So what are we supposed to do with that? Why does he do that? Well, the answer, as it is the answer to so many things, is that he messes with us to sanctify us. This, beloved, is how you become more like Jesus. He does it to expose our idols, and then he shatters them. And it hurts. And Jonah has several idols at play here. We're going to look at them more next week. But God builds them up just to break them. And this completely explodes any notion of a prosperity gospel. Health and wealth theology has no harbor here. God is not primarily interested in keeping you comfortable. He is interested in making you holy. 
So he gives Jonah just a small taste of what Nineveh has been spared. It's just a fraction of the heat that the fire and brimstone would have brought. Just a taste so that he can experience just a hint of what it would be like if God was your enemy. But God doesn't mess with his children out of caprice or malice. He does it to make us more like Jesus. He is not out to crush you because he already did that to Jesus on Calvary. This is meant to refine you. I was reflecting on this last night. Georgia reminded me of a wonderful John Newton hymn. I'm going to read you. I asked the Lord that I might grow in faith and love and every grace, might more of his salvation know and seek more earnestly his face. T'was he who taught me thus to pray, and he, I trust, has answered prayer, but it has been in such a way as almost drove me to despair. I hope that in some favored hour at once he'd answer my request and by his love's constraining power subdue my sins and give me rest. Instead of this, he made me feel the hidden evils of my heart and let the angry powers of hell assault my soul in every part. Yea, more, with his own hand he seemed intent to aggravate my woe, crossed all the fair designs I schemed, humbled my heart, and laid me low. Lord, why is this? I trembling cried. Wilt thou pursue thy worm to death? Tis in this way, the Lord replied. I answer prayer for grace and faith. These inward trials I employ from self and pride to set thee free and break thy schemes of earthly joy, that thou mayst find thy all in me. This is how growth happens. This is how the sausage gets made. That's why he does it. So that we will find our all in him, not in physical comfort, creature comforts, our favorite plants, anything else. This, beloved, is how sanctification works. It is not gaslighting. It is not meant to make you crazy. It is meant ultimately to bring you back to your senses. If you feel crazy, that's on you. He'll beat it out of you if he has to. Believe it or not, this is God's answer to Jonah's prayers in verses 2 and 3. It's not the answer he wanted, but it's what he gets. It's the slap Jonah needs to see his sin clearly for what it is. And because God loves Jonah, he would rather teach him a hard lesson than destroy him. Because he still isn't destroying him. The Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. Which means God is treating Jonah as a son. And we who are in Christ should expect nothing less. Let's pray. Gracious God, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you for the story of Jonah. Lord, we, we are often angry people. And sometimes we feel like you're just messing with us and we're not really sure what you're doing. But Lord, we are thankful that you are not satisfied to leave us where we are that we who are in Christ are compelled to become more like Christ and that your spirit is at work, if need be, toying with us, exposing our idols, crushing them in front of us. Lord, it is painful. 
but help us to trust that you are good and that you are doing this to make us more like your son. Help us to see our idols more clearly and to patiently bear up under the strain. Strengthen us by your spirit. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Please stand and join me in singing the doxology. Praise God from whom all blessings